Hello everybody and welcome back to Court Offside, the podcast that's connecting consumers, sports organisations and ultimately the fandoms associated with them. Absolutely delighted today to be joined by Tom Hines. Welcome Tom. Hey mate, how are you? I'm really good, thank you. How about yourself? Yeah, good, thank you. Good stuff. Well, I know you and I never have a loss of words with each other when we're talking about things that are passionate to both of us. And within all that, data is inherent, obviously, as well. So, Tom, your journey's been really super exciting from Arsenal to J40 Media. Tell our listeners a little bit about you and like that journey that you've been on. J40 Media is the current venture, which I started up in March this year, which is a kind of sports media consultancy. Prior to that, I spent a couple of years at Goodwood, helping them to develop their media business. I spent six years at Arsenal doing something similar, which um, as a Tottenham fan was a strange experience for the first few weeks, yeah. but um, <laughs> got into the swing of it. Um, yeah, prior to that, had a few years at BT Sport in the early days there. So I joined in the July of 2013, it must have been, and then the um, the channels launched in the August and some time at England Rugby before that, a little yeah. bit of time in motorsport a long time ago. I'm old enough to have worked in sports and digital media before Facebook was a thing for brands. So um feeling my age these days a little bit. I think your experience and everything around that's super fascinating from like the, I guess, the startup vibe of BT Sport through to the very niche of Goodwood and then obviously more of the mass of Arsenal within mm. all of there. And we can get into some of the differences between some of those organisations and more generally around the use of engagement with fans a little bit later today. Yeah, I've been working in sport and sports media for 20 odd years now and have been have been fortunate enough to work with some really brilliant people and some really quite special places. I guess I've seen quite a lot of change in that time as well, but the one thing that is a constant for me in sport and in all the places that I've worked and, and one of the reasons that I got into it in the first place was that it's something that people love, right? It's it's something that people choose to do you don't choose to spend your money on toothpaste really but you'll choose to spend your time and money on on sport and you look at things like um the euros the the kind of the Wembley scenes aside but you look at at things like the euros and you look at things like 2012 I was at Arsenal when they won an FA Cup and I was I was in the stands as an Arsenal fan and this will sound really weird to people who work outside of sport but you know a Tottenham fan who was an Arsenal fan today. And it was extraordinary. It was one of the most amazing sporting experiences that I've been in. And it is because there's this focus, there's this thing going on that unifies the people. And in terms of how I spend my time these days, I want to do something that's a bit more than, you know, making money for shareholders. You know, I think the more that we can do to sort of um, amplify the things that that do unify people and that, and that people have common interests in um the better so yeah you know that's kind of behind my choice in terms of the kind of work that i do and and the space that i work in yeah i've I've been fascinated by the sports ecosystem for the what the last two and a half years since Mm. we we started getting into it and it is so 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 very different to every other industry like you your toothpaste example for instance i always use an insurance example like no one really wants insurance but you gotta have it right Mm. you never want to use it whereas sport it's just about passion and the engagement and how embedded you really want to be within it. Yeah. And, and you've got this amazing kind of brand loyalty, really, in in you know, in, in sort of commercial terms of, you know, yeah, people will change their toothpaste, but they won't change their football club. And even when your fans are, are hating you, they're, they're, you know, it, it comes from a place of engagement. It's, it's an incredibly powerful thing. Yeah. I think outside of being a, a Manchester City fan who clearly 
had a very successful period of time. Every other Premier League club, arguably maybe Liverpool aside on here, has uh, kept their fans coming back, even though the success hasn't been in on the field, right? Mm. And that emphasises your point. Something that was really interesting for me to explore with you a little bit more today, and again, using the BT Sport, the Arsenal examples on here, and also Goodwood on there, is where the use of content fits. And obviously for BT, was that role purely around driving subscriptions? Was that what they wanted to do to drive advertising revenue? Or was there something more around a longer-term relationship with consumers? Mm. I think the, the BT Sport one was was really interesting, actually. As a, as a kind of business model, I suppose, the the reason for the rights purchases for the Premier League rights purchases and the Champions League rights purchases and for BT Sport as a as a thing was was basically a kind of incredibly expensive piece of content marketing because actually the what was happening was the broadband providers who were also media yeah. companies were taking these chunks out of BT's broadband subscriptions year after year the return on broadband once you've amortized the the hardware stuff is sort of 60 or 70 so actually originally it was you know the, the the main commercial objective there was to stop the broadband customer churn and to use the content as a as a way of recruiting new customers we ended up driving more revenue than than was expected through the kind of the bolt-on tv subscriptions which you know, speaks to your point around the the kind of the power of the of of the content there but essentially in the digital team so i was in the the bt sport digital team and we had we had a number of kind of independent production companies working there on on various bits of the output and they all had their own digital people so we were there to amplify these incredible rights that that bt sport had to drive bt sport as a sky sports and do it at a time when satanta had failed yeah. and there was a really yeah there's a great creative atmosphere there as well because the 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 kind of the main creative driver was we're going to be different we're going to offer something different to sky sports at every point of the of the the fan experience here and so we tried to bleed that into the um into the digital content as well before we get on to arsenal and goodwick so i've got some specific things i want to dive mm. into with you on that obviously the news last week around the new premier league deal with sky were you um were you surprised that amazon and the weren't really in the picture for this because whilst i think it's a a great deal for fans, right? There's one platform where you subscribe, you access all mm. of the content, which I think is good in one level. I was really surprised that Amazon weren't involved in it, given the success they have of driving subscriptions for Amazon Prime mm. through Premier League games and obviously what they're doing next week and what they did last week as well. Yeah, I, Amazon was the one that surprised me, not not so much to zone. You know, the thing about Premier League rights is certainly in the UK, the the... the the rights fees are so high now that the business model can't just be channel subscription. Yeah, you know, you've got to have something off the back of that, whether that's broadband supporting it or, in yeah. Amazon's case, the whole Prime offering and yeah. taking over the world. And yeah. correct. Um, I had heard that as a as a lever for for driving and retaining Prime customers and Prime Video customers, it was it was working pretty well. I think they've got their they've got their presentation nailed they they've ironed out a lot of the the, yeah. the technical stuff I, I was quite surprised i thought yeah. they i thought they might pick up another another couple of packages and i'm, I'm not speaking from any point of, of kind of, of being informed on this but but just my my kind of um instinctive reaction to it is that i think it shows the direction of travel for a lot of sports rights sales that you know amazon's decision there would have been really really data driven yeah and you know the 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 days of 
the rights are worth as much as the market are is, is willing yeah. to spend on them are on the wane certainly in a number of markets there are some markets where that's still true so i think that's a little bit of an indicator in terms of kind of the the direction that we're headed yeah i guess from amazon's perspective and i know obviously amazon is the world in a in the nicest <laughs> way possible the level of subscriptions they've got or enjoyed over the last two three years has probably got to the point where they've done the numbers like to your point the data around the size of the audience number of subscriptions they've got the number of products they're selling through prime and other parts of the business as well all of a sudden we've already got them mm. like do do we mm. need to be doing this yeah i'm going to put you on the spot here and obviously we right. we do this frequently <laughs> do you think it's a good deal for the scott new deal with the premier league like whether um, for, who? for the fan <laughs> for the club yeah um i mean look for, for the fan i think any you are you ask a, a sports fan and any deal which restricts or charges access to the live yeah. matches not a good deal yeah it's good insofar as um it's opening up the number of matches that are available there are kind of more more matches in the packages now um it's it's an odd situation when i can be in you know Malaysia or the west coast of the states or something like that and I can watch more live Premier League football than I can in the UK so I think that's a good deal I think there are so many kind of interests that collide it is going to be a good deal for someone in that party Um, I doubt that the fan experience was the thing that motivated anyone in the deal though So, so Tom we talked about like the benefits of the new Premier League deal more for the fan in terms of one gateway essentially to access all of the the, the games and the mm. content that you'd want on there. When when we look at it on the club side of things, and I think it's very difficult to look beyond this, right? Is their security and given financial challenges, a mm. lot of sporting organisations and Premier League clubs have great on that level. But when you look at it at a different level, the deal's relatively static, or if not, maybe slightly decreased because mm. the revenue is one thing, but the number of games you're showing. So the unit cost was essentially playing a different role in it. Is this the beginning of the maturation of like media rights deals for the Premier League, or do you see this as very much the next wave of monetization internationally? I'm not the best person to ask this question to because about eight years ago I was saying, well, they've reached that. This is they, they, yeah. they can't possibly drive any more money out of these rights deals domestically, and the unit price has has taken a hit. But you know the the overall revenue numbers have been climbing the last few sales there is still potential in the global in the international markets yeah for me one of the things that's interesting around the premier league is if you if you look at someone like ufc or wwe you know ufc is a, a sports rights owner that has grown up in the digital age yeah. and and there you know the fight pass the way that they leverage digital channels the way they go direct to fan I think is is brilliant. Yeah. Um and the Premier League has always been in a position where because of its success and because of its success its historic success built on linear TV rights it's always understandably been a little bit slower to innovate because the the impetus to innovate hasn't been there because the rights deals have been growing both domestically and internationally. What I find quite interesting is what's the next step because we all know linear is um as a consumption platform is on the wane globally yep. we all know digital delivery gives you much much better viewer data and audience data to attach to that viewership data so there's going to be more stringency if that's a word yep. coming, <laughs> coming into the um into the considerations about those rights deals and how the premier league moves into a, a 
D2C yeah. world, I think, is, is going to be fascinating yeah. because there are so many really significant revenue streams to protect there. Yeah. But there is also opportunity to move into in, in D2C from a data point of view, yeah. but also from a kind of, you know, what are all of the different ways in which your audience wants to interact with your with your product as well. Yeah. Where are the focus is around those fans and audience? Is it around the live event? Is it the match day attendee? Is it trying to get the casual fan to engage or do something different? Versus is it somebody who's just got an affinity for Arsenal or Goodwood mm. who engages infrequently and doesn't spend direct? How much attention and focus is given across those different kind of fan audience segments? I, I, I mean, I can't really speak to Arsenal because it's it's what three yeah. about three years since since I've been there. But across the industry, across the sort of the sports media industry, the area that everyone is looking at is casual fans. I mean, like we're yeah. we're all very good at taking care of our core fan bases. Yeah. One of the things that I used to bang on about at Arsenal is that. You know, if you're a Premier League team, and if you're a top six Premier League team, you're guaranteed that you're going to get a certain engagement, number of engagements, you're going to get a certain reach, you've got an audience of, you know, 100 odd million. Yeah. So you've got to kind of take that out of the question. There is a core there who are going to engage with you pretty much whatever you do. The area that people are looking in now within the industry is how do we get out of the core fan base? How do we attach ourselves to other kind of passion points that people have whether that's music or fashion yeah. or film and a lot of the hand-wringing that goes on is around how how we hit the the younger fan bases as well yeah do you think that kind of target demographic or younger audience mm. it is a case of trying to compete with netflix or Fortnite, or is it a case of being connected into that ecosystem i think it's a little bit of both actually yeah. i think you know we've all got a finite amount of attention yeah finite amount of kind of consumption time i think as sports teams right rights holders sports broadcasters as well you're always trying to get your the, the greatest share of that attention as, as as you can and that happens in a in a kind of a load of concentric circles in my mind and one of those content you know, in the middle is your kind of core fan who's going to yeah. pay for the club offering or the you know the broadcast or whatever it is somewhere in those other concentric circles is yeah how do we how do, do we as arsenal show up in these other places that people are consuming content and spending their time and i think that whole crossover world i find it a bit mind-blowing sometimes you know that i I remember when i was at arsenal we did a a sponsorship piece with universal pictures and one of the things we were trying to promote was um one of the minions films yeah and one of the executions we came up with was okay we want to get uh gunasaurus the arsenal mascot and a minion next to each other beside the pitch and um, Universal, were like no, no, they don't. They exist in separate universes. You can't have yeah. them in the same image. And now you've got Peter Griffin turning up in Fortnite next yeah. to Eminem. You know, it's yeah. just it's mad. I love it, but it's mad. No, I I agree with you. And I feel like within sport and particularly football as well, D C C's already always been there. Match day and commerce business has always been there, and the clubs are doing that really, really well, right? But like, I think the next view has to be is around. What market, with what fans, with what affinity for the club should we go after? And what's the strategy we should put behind all of that? I've debated many times over, not just on this podcast, but with other consumer brands and sports organisations. The holy grail is not to convert the 100 million social media followers or 200, 300 million, what it is. Imagine a world where you double the size of your database with paying fans. 
that is not just incrementality, right? That is step change in terms of the transformation of revenue that you could get. I don't know if clubs think like that. What what do you think? Certainly for Premier League clubs, there's always been this fire hose of broadcast rights, of live rights money. There's been no necessity for that innovation. I think more and more on the kind of um, business side of of Premier League clubs, that thinking is starting to materialise. Um, you know, Arsenal, for a few years before I joined, the, the biggest area of investment outside of football was in CRM. They're extremely good from a kind of direct marketing point of view. It's, it's all within the context of the live rights being over here. Like the yeah. really leverageable thing is over here and is already sold by the time the, the clubs yeah. start working on it. So I think the awareness is growing that the director fan piece and the yeah. zero party data as well as the yeah. first party data are getting more and more important. Yeah. And is content like the key then in unlocking that director fan or is it part of a toolkit? It's part of it, yeah. certainly. And I think I think it depends a little bit on what you lump into uh, into your definition of content yeah. as well. The idea that Premier League clubs could compete with, with you know, the big streaming services is a bit nuts i think the idea that that you can drive you know significant kind of eight figure upwards direct revenues from just a d2c content platform i don't think is realistic in my experience but that is an element of it i think what clubs can do better is reward fans for their fandom yeah everywhere in the world wherever they are in the world and however they're engaging if you can drive enough value into that rewards piece then it becomes a a viable d2c proposition but that can't just be based on content because the thing that drives sports fans to part with money for content is the live event i looked at various football clubs and they've got their own tv channels and Mm. it's like watch along of the game they seem to be curated with a match day fan in mind versus i live in australia or i live in the u.s Mm. The fans are the soundtrack, right? And don't get me wrong, there's value of having it, but I don't think they appreciate what the fans want to see and what they want to consume in some of these global mm. markets. What do you think? I'm not sure anyone quite knows what they want to consume yeah. outside of the live matches. Yeah. And it's hard enough to get people to pay for the live matches. There's a huge piracy problem in, yeah. in live sport across the board. And I think we're all very used to getting lots of content for free as well. Yeah. Unless it's the really core stuff. Where it becomes interesting is I'm a Spurs fan, so I'm I'm a I'm a Spurs fan. I also have you know these four or five other interests, ways of spending my time and money, that sort of thing. How can you, as Tottenham Hotspur, enhance my experience across the board? Starting with the core thing of the match and my connection with Spurs. How how can you give me a better match day experience when I'm at home, whether yeah. that's in Surrey or in Switzerland? Yeah. How can you deliver me? exclusive content around that and then how can you as Tottenham tap into those other areas partner with those other people and things that I spend money on that's the space that I think where it gets really interesting you talk about example of being you're a Tottenham fan and to build out from you being at the live event or the game or consuming Mm. it at home and then what experiences to create around it I think the inverse is true if you look at a global fan they're a consumer that has an affinity for your club. So how do you fit 
value propositions and it could be existing partners into that consumer mindset to deepen that fandom so that they might start to consume and engage more directly with the club as well. Mm. Football clubs could be, create the ecosystems and be the holder of the ecosystem that provides the pathway. Yeah. Right? Amazon is a pathway. Yeah. Sky is a pathway. I think the direct-to-consumer model for the clubs has to be more around that, mm. but in different geographies, and maybe only in one or two geographies. A lot of, obviously, what we've talked about is, I guess, traditional Premier League, the men's Premier League. Mm. Do you think there's an opportunity in women's soccer or women's mm. Premier League that could be very, very different around that direct-to-consumer and what are your thoughts on that and how they coexist within the mm. clubs already as well? The pace at which women's football is moving from a, a kind of a profile point of view and a professionalism point of view, if you, if you like, yeah. is just is phenomenal and it's brilliant to see as a league that is starting right now in this era of data of fragmented yeah. consumption of d to c delivery and of sort of third party media delivery in the same way that the ufc has and in, yeah. the, in the way that the premier league hasn't had to i don't know what that looks like but it feels exciting and interesting yeah. and there is there's there is definitely potential there there's something quite interesting around the whole sponsorship area as well when you're not selling sponsorship off volume yeah but you've got this really high-profile product which is attached to these very, very powerful brands of you know, Barcelona or Arsenal or Chelsea or whoever it is. There's something quite interesting there around how you sell the sponsorship and how yeah. you use your audience data and your fan data and your niches and, yeah. and that kind of thing. The sponsorship piece is fascinating on two levels. One, in terms of the wider audience that's watching at home, mm. but also the match day audience. So mm. I, I was in Madrid last week and heard lady from Chelsea talking about some insights and data analysis that her and her team have conducted where 70% of the fans that watched the Chelsea women's team had never been to Stamford Bridge before. They had then started to show that they retained those audiences as well. So there's a really interesting concept within there around like there's the segmentation of a fan set, which is the traditional men's team. Mm. And it is to almost focus in on like the brand of the club doesn't necessarily represent or have to resonate with the audience because the audience is very different in the men's and the women's game. Mm. And then how do you commercially exploit that? And exploit is the word for doing it. Yeah. Is where the real upside probably comes as well for brands who associate with the clubs, but mm. also within wider sponsorships as well. Yeah, and I, th- I think it's um it's something that I talk to to people on the on the kind of content side of things about fairly often that your your audience is self-selecting and you can tell a different story or, or you know you highlight different elements of your brand across different platforms because there are so many platforms a football club is publishing content on at the moment and you know we've uh, we've I've had a look in the past at, at work around creating starting with the audience and then creating the content strands that yeah. you think are going to appeal to that specific audience in a kind of very old school tv way of doing things and so yeah there's absolutely nothing stopping you offering a, a different brand experience i suppose yeah. for a women's team compared to a, to a men's yeah. team so we've talked about content we've talked about the differences within a men's game environment and the women's mm. team environment something that you and i obviously talked about previously as well is 
these fandoms have a lot of adjacent value and a lot of adjacent interest, not just Fortnite and things like that, but like I'm thinking music now. So mm. is the opportunity for football clubs to start to provide more audience extension or wider engagement with the team through helping music labels or artists connect with their wider fandoms. Do you think that's a real possibility? Mm. I'm really aware that we're talking loads about football clubs here, but I think I think a lot of these principles run across yeah. across sports. But what football clubs have is a share of attention. Yeah. Um and they are sought out and they have a regular flow of great moments and and great pieces of media and content that they can that they can put out there. I think where where music is interesting is that's a way of enhancing the fan experience of those pieces of content that you're delivering across digital whilst giving exposure to an artist or a stable from a particular label or something like that you know it's it's very hard for you as an as an insurance company to enhance my experience of a Richarlison goal but it's quite easy as a, a music publisher to enhance my experience of that because yeah. you know, soundtracking just mean you know, is is such a powerful thing. So, I think there are definitely sort of little tactical opportunities there for sport and music to to work closer, and for music labels to to leverage the fandom that that football yeah. clubs have and this incredible global reach as well. When you then get into slightly more sophisticated and sort of in depth partnerships between labels or artists and um, clubs. There's a really interesting brand benefit for the club as well, especially when we you know you go back to that idea of the hand wringing that goes on about how you engage a sixteen and up yeah. audience. That segment have you know, really important emotional connections with music, and it's a really easy way to say something about the brand of a club if you like align yourself with a, a particular artist. Uh, so yeah, I think there's a lot of benefit on both sides there. And that leads us into like more of the the wider piece around like how well equipped are clubs to take the audience that they have, the mm. wider highlight reel of goals, for instance, like Richarlison that you've just mentioned there, and actively take that out to music labels, for instance, so that the music label goes, we're going to spend X promoting an X tour concert or this up and coming mm. like artist. If a club could take this, our club has this high affinity for these type of music artists in this genre. Do you think that's a real opportunity then? Yeah, I think uh, it's something that we've been working on at J40 actually, is um, how do we help clubs and labels work better together? Yep. And from a really, really simple point of view, labels, the music industry spends billions each year on influencer marketing. Some of that stuff works really well. Having done some influencer work in the past, there are always frustrations around that reporting sometimes isn't great that the sort of professionalism that that you encounter can can leave something a, a little bit wanting at times we're looking at how we work with labels to effectively help them use sports clubs as influencer channels yeah uh, what's the pay and play model where you've got your tour coming up in certain parts of the world we know that liverpool have a a really great concentration of fans in certain parts of the world can we just soundtrack a whole bunch of liverpool content yeah with the artist is coming up and some really, you know, th- those are the really simple tactical pieces yeah. that I think everyone understands and can work with. And from there, yeah. How do we then yeah. build out those more sophisticated partnerships? Yeah. We, we've seen that whole amplification of the reach, mm. like quite interestingly, only, only with esports at the moment where obviously the, the rights to 
esports and streaming has driven certain volume of audience, but it's actually some of the, like the key creators and influencers within that group mm. with high affinity for it gave so much more volume in terms of impressions and exposure yeah. to the brands than that the actual streaming audience would have given as well. Yeah, and I think that's where the clubs can potentially evolve their model so that it isn't interfering mm. with the rights for various reasons. Obviously, we've mentioned them before. I think there's the opportunity there, and. Where, where do you think direct-to-consumer fits for these investors in these clubs? And do you think they're looking at it as a multimedia play against some of the concepts we've been talking about mm. today? Yeah, it's sort of coming back into focus almost. Yeah. It's sort of gone in waves over the last sort of decade or so. Because, you know, direct-to-consumer, direct from a media point of view, 15 years ago, you had a whole bunch of club TV channels yeah. that, that were broadcasting 24-7 domestically and, yeah. and internationally. As audience behaviors changed that sort of ebbs and flows i think we're in a place now where the clubs who are looking at this closely are looking at it from a data point of view like yeah. that that's the thing that has kicked this back into focus as a commercial consideration the clubs who are doing it best man city and tottenham are doing a, a pretty good job of it they've got an evolving d2c yeah. platform that has you know more than just academy games streamed yeah. live but as far as I know, that's all. All of that is done on their own platforms. Yeah. So that piece that, that that we were talking about around sort of the fandom being a pathway, I haven't seen anyone playing in that yeah. space yet. If you come in outside of sport or outside of the Premier League, and you see these huge fan numbers and you see these huge sort of social engagement audience numbers, it seems like a bit of a no-brainer. Yeah, you know, it's it's kind of well, there must be a D to C model here i think what gets lost a little bit is that piece that we were talking about around what drives the audience outside of live yeah you're effectively trying to run as a media company without having your yeah. best bit of content on there i think actually more than sort of thinking of it as a dtc platform i think more and more people are thinking of it as a as a meaningful digital membership or yeah. remote membership or global membership or something whereby yeah because of the way in which tech has changed and delivery has changed and media consumption is changing and with some of the blockchain stuff that's coming in that you can yeah. sit on top of your club database the idea of offering something which is beyond just content is starting to to gather a bit of pace i think and i think there is a commercial opportunity there i think it needs some more creative thought than just a content yeah. offering yeah, I agree with you. I, I think you, you've nailed one of the points that we continuously run into is around like the first step on this is how do you take that delta that exists from your database mm. and your hundreds of millions of social media followers and identify the fan groups or segments that you have the highest probability to try and convert to a direct digital proposition. Mm. It has to be a very different proposition to what they're used to consuming because they can get that elsewhere. Mm. So it's got to be different there. Then it's sizing it. In terms of like how much money can we really get, and like we've we've looked at this, and for the big six Premier League clubs, we've been quoted many times around eight hundred and fifty million being left on the table. Well, is it really being left on the table versus being achievable, right? And I think we're talking around some of those things today. Mm. And I think outside of all of this as well, it's the value of increasing like that direct digital connection should be seen through the lens of actually creating more value to sponsors as well. It's not yeah. just a direct revenue Absolutely. place, an yeah. indirect piece. Yeah. And final thing that I really want to put you on the spot 
with today. <laughs> Ownership of these clubs, right? Yeah. And it's changed significantly in the last 10 years out yeah. there. And obviously Manchester City have been well publicised around multi-club ownership. And that's been more around like how do they leverage and create efficiency and value across the club. Mm-hmm. What's interesting for me is how could you, and do you think this is possible, connect all of those multi-clubs and it could be multi-sport as well and sell a total sponsorship package to big oh, brands yeah. out there. The fact that no one's done it yet. Yeah. So, <laughs> so it's, to me that there's got to be. Like, well, <laughs> yeah, they, um, it's one of those things that on paper makes absolute, yeah. absolute sense. If you can activate on a global level and a local level and cross sport, then yeah, why wouldn't you? And I wonder whether it does actually come down to structure insofar as the different clubs within one ownership will be acting as very as as their own sort of siloed yeah. entities and just from a from a kind of ways of working point of view and yeah. an objective point of view and actually how do you then divvy up yeah the value of that deal between the clubs and you know yeah i think there's um, bigger more nurtured traditional media organizations have clearly nailed that right you look at disney yeah. with all of the franchises and propositions that they've got they've yeah. been able to do those things i think the the other interesting thing for me and it and it's it's one of the things that has driven the thinking behind that work that we've been doing between music and clubs is if you were a pure media company with the sort of audiences and engagements that premier league clubs are getting or the you know the knicks are getting or whatever you'd monetize in a very different way from how club media is able to monetize now yeah. because club media has a whole load of constraints um which are wrapped up with those traditional partnership models so, you know, you have to have block lists when you're driving direct revenue on yeah. YouTube as a really basic, simple example. I think there's something quite interesting around how do clubs shift to behave more like media companies from a sponsorship and advertising yeah. point of view? And what sort of reset does that need on the sponsorship side? And it kind of comes back a little bit to what we were talking about around the Premier League, that there's this big bit of revenue that the business wants to protect and so actually it's safer not to push that but i don't think there's anyone who's really picked apart what value can be driven from more sort of direct advertising and how much that may or may not yeah. affect the traditional sponsorship models yeah I, I think there could be a model where it's outsourced as well mm. core competency and skill and experience within clubs i think culture how do you govern some of these things as well? And then mm. you've got the people aspect of it. So yeah. I'll, I'll be fascinated to see if that comes to, to fruition or not. But wanted to thank you again, Tom. Thanks so much for your time today. Yeah, absolute uh, pleasure. As always, enjoyed our conversation. And also to our audience out there as well. Thank you for listening in to Court Offside. Remember, please subscribe, share, like, view on YouTube as well. And look forward to talking to you all again in the new year. Thank you.